Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today I'm talking with the authors of Uncommon Core, where the authors of the standards go wrong about instruction and how you can get it right. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the NWP in Berkeley, California. In this book, Michael W. Smith, Deborah Appleman, and Jeff Wilhelm have a, take a unique approach to writing about the standards. Although they provide some critique of the standards themselves, their focus is on the wrong-headed instructional ideas that authors of the standards have been promulgating. By sharing instructional ideas that are derived from what we know about best practice, they demonstrate that the standards can be levers for progressive practice. Today's show has been pre-recorded. As always, if you are listening to us at airtime, we invite you to join us in the chat room where we can post links to materials related to tonight's program. Tonight, we're so pleased to welcome the authors of the Uncommon Core. They are Jeff Wilhelm, Professor of English Education at Boise State University and Director of the Boise State Writing Project. Michael W. Smith, Professor at Temple University College of Education and the Founding Director of the National Writing Project at Rutgers University. And Deborah Appleman, Professor of Educational Studies and Director of the Summer Writing Program at Carleton College. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you for having us, Tanya. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We're glad to be here. Thanks, Tanya. Excellent. Uh, let's jump right in because there's so much exciting to talk about in this book. And let's start where you all start with what there really is to like about the Common Core state standards. Um, maybe each of you could start, uh, could choose something important to like and tell us a little bit about why you think so. Jeff, do you want to get us started? Well, one of the things that Michael, Deborah, and I have written about for years is the importance of moving from information-driven teaching to sociocultural apprenticeship teaching. And one thing I particularly love about the core is the anchor standards are all procedural and strategic. So it moves us away from purveying content and towards apprenticing the kids to doing things. I love that they're focused, that you're going to focus on the same 32 standards, grades K through 12, I think the standards are very consistent with the research in literacy and in cognitive science about how expertise in reading and writing and language is actually exercised and developed. And I think it's got the opportunity to professionalize teaching because it's going to require what Lee Shulman calls pedagogical content knowledge, knowing how to teach kids how to read and write. And that gives us professional decision-making power and professionalizes us as a profession. And I must add, can leverage the National Writing Project and all the professional development and teacher development that we do. You get paid extra for that, Jeff. <laughs> um, so let me add something to what Jeff said. I, I was at lunch today with the um, chief, chief operating officer of Gerard College, a, school in Philadelphia, a residential school in Philadelphia for kids in dire economic needs, and he talked about how the rigor of the Common Core has forced them to up their game in trying to improve the life chances of the kids that they serve. So one of the things that I like about it is that the sort of increasing demand for rigor for all um, I think is important. And I think that they can be, that standards, um, similar to what Jeff said, can be used as a consequence as a lever for progressive practice because the only way we're going to get kids to that level of rigor is with the best, most engaging, and most powerful instruction we can offer. 
And um, I'd like to underscore what both Jeff and Michael said, especially Michael's last point about, you know, there's something inherently egalitarian about articulating standards for everyone. And all three of us really appreciate that we um, set out some standards that we think are important for all kids to reach, regardless of what kind of school they find them in, themselves in. And uh, we appreciate that. Um, e democratic gesture of uh, equality of expectations. We also um, wanted to point out that it isn't so much the standards themselves as articulated. I agree with everything that Jeff said about how smart they are, about how they reflect much of what we know about the kinds of um, things that we want kids to be able to do from the perspective of their literacy engagement. Where we um, started to worry is in how those standards were animated and through example and the ways in which that contradicts what we know about best practice from uh, decades of research. Deborah, that is a perfect segue, though. Before we go, I want to say I think um, this is a really beautifully articulated vision of the standards that um, could needs to be in the water and for teachers to um, think about and think with. So thanks. It's a really nice framework for the rest of our conversation. And Deborah, I did want to make sure that um, we moved not only from what you think is really uh, promising and engaging and important in the standards to what um, is concerning. So you've named a thing that's a concern. Are there other concerns that you have about the Common Core? Um, sure. So for decades, all of all three of us have been working on what are the ways to best engage kids with texts. And many of the things that it's not only, it's not that we've come up with them, but these are practices that are echoed through practitioners throughout the field of literacy education. And we feel that some of those practices have been contradicted and discouraged. For example, one of the hallmarks of effective literacy instruction is personal engagement with texts. And we feel that some of the examples that have been given and some specific um, information admonishes teachers to, um, by stating that we have overemphasized personal engagement. Now, that's not a criticism that we're completely unfamiliar with and we think is completely unfounded, but we do think that the authors of the standards have overcorrected. All of us who live in classrooms with kids know that if kids are not engaged and if we don't pay attention to their own personal experiences and how they interact with the text, that we're not going to be successful teachers. Um, we also have done, and especially Michael and Jeff have written a lot about the importance of um, front-loading as just an example of being able to honor what kids bring to the table when they're going to read, that in order to have kids have a meaningful reading experience, we have to activate their prior knowledge in a variety of different ways. And, it's, and there are many different ways of doing that, and we affirm many of them in the book, as Michael and Jeff have done in other works that they've written. Um, and we really worry about the fact that one of the things that is called for and exemplified is what we would call a cold reading, just 
dumping kids into a text and seeing if they can swim. And we just think that that goes against sort of what we all believe of do no harm. You know, we don't want kids to struggle. We just think that when kids struggle, they learn, you know, how not to like to read and that there's a difference between appropriate challenge and having a kid feel that what's happening in classrooms isn't something that they can do. So that's just a start. Great. Thanks. You know, Everyone, I, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to jump in and say my, I got a couple of big worries of my own. One is the exemplars. Why mm-hmm. did they put those in and why are they what they are? Because <laughs> what happens, and, and yeah. what I see happening all the time, is that people say, you know, in the core you have to teach proxen or whatever. And you go, no. And they go, well, it's right there. And they say it's required. And they go, no, it's an, it's an exemplar text. It reminds me of a party I was at uh, when Cultural Literacy was written by E.D. Hirsch. And Wayne Booth, who's a very famous literary theorist, said to Edie Hirsch, hey, I love your book. I love the argument. And Hirsch said, thank you. And then Booth said, but why'd you put the stupid dictionary in there? <laughs> and, and Hirsch laughed and said, so I'd sell a million copies. Uh, and then they had a discussion about how the dictionary undermined the argument. That's what's uh, happening here, that the exemplars are undermining the standards. And the same thing happens, what the authors are saying, and many other commentators are saying, is often wrong and often violates the standards themselves or undermines those standards. The, you know, the standards are about principles, not curriculum. That's the power of them because it says to the teachers, and it does say this in Appendix B, that teachers should be allowed to decide the methods and the materials that are going to work with their kids in their situation to leverage the standards. And then they do all these things that actually undermine that. And I see that as a big problem. A final problem is because of that, there's a lot of misinformation out there among parents and even among teachers that is undermining the implementation. Thanks. Uh, And I wonder, Michael, if we could, um, uh, you may have other things you'd like to talk about, but I know you also make an argument that um, one thing to think about when you look at the core is what's not there. And um, I was particularly moved and, um, and um, uh, I don't know, moved, I guess, by these two important ideas that you think that you named as being left out of the core, and those are wisdom and pleasure. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, let me take the second one first. So n- nowhere in the statements of the standards is there anything about in you know developing life lifelong reading or recognizing the importance how reading can enhance reading and writing can enhance one's life there's so the when when Deborah was talking about just a minute ago about engaged reading and writing she's talking about the importance of motivation i would argue that the um that as teachers we want to cultivate, we want to have our students to experience the pleasure of reading and writing in the here and now, both so they'll engage in it and so that they'll be more apt to do it in when they're outside of school, either in future years or you know at home when they have in in, in their free time. So the I, the notion that pleasure is I don't know secondary or unimportant. It's, it's, hard, it's harder to measure pleasure, I guess, than it is to measure comprehension. But um, but I would argue, we would all argue, that if kids take pleasure in their reading and writing, they're mo- much more apt to, um, to you know to get 
more out of it to, to get the sort of deep comprehension that the standards that the standards call for. Um, the point about wisdom is is this: you know, we're we're all readers, and we're readers because, and I became I literacy educators because texts have been important in for us in thinking about the way we live our lives, and so there's not anything in the standards about about becoming a better person, about about ethics, about using texts as a way to think about what you can do right now to make your world a better place and how you might act in the future. So one of the that bigger things that drove us to the profession in the first place um, are not articulated in the standard. Now, I don't think that they're incompatible. I don't think none – none of us think that they're incompatible with the standards. That is, if you uh, – you probably – you certainly would be better able to use something that you read as to change your world if you could do the things, the procedural things that Jeff was talking about, um, if you could do those things. But the fact is that they're not in there, and we can't lose sight of them just because they're not in there. We we need to keep in mind that we teach for greater purposes than the achievement of the standards. We we teach to have to help our kids become better human beings, more thoughtful human beings, more understanding human beings, and what and that we should keep that larger goal in mind when we think about why these these standards are important in the first place. I'd like to add that I mean Michael mentioned pleasure. And I, I don't think that anybody's ever going to achieve these standards as worthy as they are unless they are learning with joy and engagement, unless they understand the great and deep pleasure of reading, of writing, of applying what they've learned, of helping other people. I think it's also important that we're educating for civic engagement and service for a kind of democracy. And I agree with Michael that everything that's missing in the standards, we can add. So to me, that's not a debilitating critique. It's just something we have to be aware of, that the, the core does not talk about these higher purposes nor the prerequisites to this kind of learning. It's down to us to make sure those things get supplied. And that connects to your comment about exemplars, Jeff. And in this case, I would blame um, ourselves as a profession rather than the standards themselves. And this is where an organization like the National Writing Project can really come in. What we tend to do is to read too literally what it is that is presented to us and to think that what's left out should not be included. That's partly because of the pressure that everybody is feeling to realign their curriculum. It's partly because of the articulation of the exemplars and because of the kind of counterintuitive examples of practice that have been put out there. So one of the main reasons why we wrote the book and why we so appreciate being able to talk with you today is to strongly encourage teachers to fill in the gaps with what they know about best practice, to not just use exemplars but to use other texts that have been tried and true, and to not literally read what is um, being said in the standards themselves. I'd like to piggyback on what Deborah just said. You know, my, my wife Peggy, who we dedicated this book to, by the way, has often said, both as a teacher and a parent, you know, that doctor might know kids, but he doesn't know my child the way I do. And I think that that's true of teachers. You know, researchers, standard writers, they might know about, you know, learning. They might know about reading. 
but they don't know your students, the specific needs sitting with you in your, in your own classroom. And I think that the professionalizing lever of the core is that it allows us that decision-making power, and I don't want to see that lost. I'm, I'm afraid I have to say that um, one of the points that we make up in, make in the book, though, is that the standard writers might know about standards, but they don't know about teaching, at least the way that teachers right. do. So that's, that's an important thing, <laughs> important distinction. You know, knowing what the goal is does not mean that you have a handle necessarily on how the best way is to get there. We don't know what kind of doctors they are. That's right. <laughs> and I, I just want to say, and this this exchange around this question among the three of you um, made me, uh, and I may say I may have thought to say this later, but I want to say it now. Uh, made me think one of the joys for me of reading this book was. Um, the sort of opportunity to do a meta reading and to be able, in the way you make so visible the way that you all have read the standards, how how um, there's really a lot of examples of close reading of the standards and really digging into specific details, and then there's also this um, like wide reading of the standards as a contextualized document um, that. Um, is in relationship to other documents and and what is really in the standards and what other people are talking about. And I think it's a really powerful example for all teachers. I think um, also that this book really is not going to let teachers off the hook or any of us off the hook who are who care about the direction of education. Really make it clear that we have to know them and we have to know and own the um, what we already know about teaching and learning and the children in front of us and um, that we're responsible for making the connections and noticing where things don't fit or align and and um, both acting on that and talking about that. So um, I really thank you for that. Thanks. Thanks. Three um, heads are better than one. <laughs> That's exactly. Right, exactly. And thousands of teachers are in this conversation are even better than that. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the contextual, contextualizing this document and its relationship to um, some historical ways of thinking about teaching, reading, and writing. Early in your book, you lay out a sort of short history of literary theory and focus on the relationship of reader response theory to new criticism and the relationship of both of those to the common core standards and to responsive pedagogy. Um, does one of you want to explain why it's important to understand these theories and their historical interaction when we read and respond to the core and the work that's rising up around it? Sure. Um, I'll take that, gentlemen, okay. if you don't mind. And um, I'm sure you'll add in later. I mean, one of the things that, one of the first points that we want to make um, that kind of goes back to what you just said, Tanya, is that um, we do do close reading, and we think that there's a false uh, dichotomy in our profession. Like, you either do close reading or you pay attention to kids' feelings. And we don't think that that's <laughs> kind of the way things go. You can do both. Um, and, it, and we all three of us believe that it's important to do both. Um, but what we find is that there's this kind of anachronistic return to a a sort of impoverished version of new criticism, which is why, quoting our colleague Peter Rabinowitz, we call it zombie new criticism. Once upon a time in English language arts classrooms, uh, the text was the king or the queen, 
the teacher understood the meaning of the text, which was derived from yellow notes in their college literature classes. And things became, classrooms became guessing games where we would finally cobble together uh, a, a meeting that had been prearranged or predetermined. Um, and that worked from, for some kids. Um, but it didn't work for a lot of kids, and they got turned off to what they thought was kind of an arcane guessing game. And only certain kinds of texts were necessarily taught. That isn't what new criticism was meant to be, but it was sort of like how it turned out. And in the 60s and 70s um, came what we would call a kind of humane corrective, where kids' feelings and responses were no longer what I.A. Richards called a mnemonic irrelevance, but they were important. And that's one of the reasons why Tom Newkirk sort of talks about the fact that some of the ways in which um, these kinds of close readings are offered in this new version are really kind of inhumane. So from a pedagogical perspective, you know, close reading alone without paying any attention to the socio-cultural context, not only of the text, but of the classroom and of the kids themselves, is something that simply did not work well and disenfranchised many, many, many young readers, especially young readers at risk. So there's a pedagogical reason for why we turned away from that, and we're really worried that we're turning back to a kind of practice that didn't work. But another reason why teachers need to be multiply theoried kind of goes back all the way to Jeff's first comment, is, you know, we read... We read to sort of make sense of the world around us. We read to understand our place in it. There are many in different interpretations of what a meaningful life is, of different theories, of different beliefs. And if we don't invite kids to think about competing worldviews, to think about competing multiple perspectives, um, then we're not giving them an opportunity to find their way in it. And finally... We think that there's something, you know, ideologically prescribed about some of the ways in which um, this, it, it's being encouraged that the standards be taught. And as teachers, as literacy educators, we need to be theoretically savvy, too, so that we can step back and say, what are the motivations of this movement? Who does it benefit? Where do I fit into it? Is this something that I need to resist as a person who cares about the literacy achievement of all kids? And if so, how do I enter into the conversation? What is the theoretical basis for their argument, and how does it differ from mine? So for all of those broader reasons, teachers need to be able to name their theories, and I'm sure that Jeff and Michael might want to add to that. Or not. Uh, you going to go or you and me? Why don't you go? Okay, uh, I will. Um, so uh, let me add to to, uh, to what Deborah said uh, in that the, um, the standards are presented as though there can be no imaginable alternative, like they're somehow inevitable, instead of being... Um, in a way that I think is disrespectful to the profession because it doesn't engage the arguments that have been happening since, but, you know, Louise Rosenblatt, um, literature as 
as exploration came out the same year as understanding poetry. So for 74 years, there's been a conversation in our profession about how the nature of the transactions readers have with texts in particular contexts. And the, the standards and the standards writers don't engage that in, in, in any kind of way. So in, um, we also sort of point, uh, point out one of the things that bothers us most is the caricatures that have come up around um, that David Coleman, for example, and, and in his public pronouncements made about what the nature of instruction is in the schools, as though the new criticism is no longer influ influential. And that's just not the case. Uh, the fear of constructivism, I mean, Deborah pointed out how the, there's, there can be a complementarity to more response-centered uh, instructional approaches and more text-based instructional approaches, but the, the authors of the standards seem to caricature practices being, you know, so how did you feel? What did this make you feel? Or let or not talk about the texts at all, where they they would ask questions like, um, so after reading King's letter, which we spent a good that letter from Birmingham Jail, which we spent a good deal of time on in the book, saying, let's, talk, let's forget about King and let's just talk about injustice or something like that. We, I, I just don't see that kind of practice in, in schools. And so it's insulting, to, 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 quite frankly, that uh, document that's, that has an explicit statement about the professionalism of teachers, a document that's built on... Co being college ready. Well, part of being college ready is to engage in a discipline, building on the knowledge that exists in a discipline. And here's a time when I just don't think it happens. And uh, that's that's one reason we take that up, that you know that, that sort of theoretical argument up in the book. Uh, I can hear thousands of teachers um, raising a cheer. Michael, thank you for saying those words. I want to uh, add one other thing to this which is everything Deborah and Michael talked about in terms of literary theory is also happening in cognitive science. Barbara Rogoff is one of my favorite cognitive scientists, and she argues that American teachers tend to be mired in information transmission teaching, which is not generative, which is not principled, which does not lead to transfer, which is something we take up in the book. And she focused on the why and the how, which is what Deborah and Michael were talking about then you have to attend to the who, the specific human beings who are looking. And that leads you naturally to the meaning, to the what. So I think it's very important that we note that everything we're talking about in terms of literary theory is paralleled by conversations going on in cognitive science. Excellent. Um, Jeff, I'm going to actually have you kind of take that, uh, follow that through with a little bit of an example. And I don't know if you're moving around, but I did notice that your phone cut out a little bit So, in that last answer, so I'm just telling you that. No, I'm sorry. Somebody called me. Oh, that's what I meant. <laughs> did you want um, me to repeat that or? No, no. It was just a little blip. I was afraid we were losing you, but if it was just that, it will... Either go. It's like interviewing teachers in schools, and the bells ring. It gives some, some reality to our show. So well, let me ask, let me f follow um, your Barbara Rogoff um, argument with an opportunity for us to look at some examples. So um, you point out that the standards themselves 
focus on what students should know and be able to do with a heavy emphasis on what they can the, the they can do side and less on particular instruction about or particular ideas about content. Um, furthermore, the document itself clearly says that how students get there should be up to the professional <coughs> of, um, professionalism and the professional decision making of the teacher. And yet, we have seen lots of examples of crazy teaching, the, the David Coleman letter from Birmingham jail example of what you refer to in chapter three as sink or swim teaching put forward as exemplars. Um, it seems like you all agree that this is wrong. <laughs> um, Jeff, can you talk about um, some of the particular kinds of preparation that students might need to meet texts and and how a teacher might help students be better ready to meet a, one of those particular kinds of challenges. So um, I think this is a chance to take these ideas to, into like a practice example. Before I get practical, I just want to say that this is the single craziest thing I've ever heard said, and how it gets interpreted is, is equally crazy. You know, I go places and people will say, you're not allowed to do pre-reading anymore. You're not allowed to do pre-writing anymore. You're not allowed to prepare the kids for success anymore. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They go, well, it's in the standards. And I go, no, David Coleman said it. He recanted it. It's not in the standards. But it's a craziness because we know going back to schema theory back in the 60s and 70s in the seminal research of Bransford and Johnson that the only resources you have to learn something new is what you already know and already care about, even if those things are misconceptions. And if they're misconceptions, it's doubly important to articulate them because they have to be addressed and rebuilt. And I'm thinking of the, the study private universe that was done. Anyway, how do you get going with kids when you're teaching them something new, something they can't yet do? How do you move them into that zone of proximal development? Well, obviously, brainstorming, what you already know that might apply, uh, KWL. You know, those are simple things you can do that, activate what the kids already know, activate a purpose, and give them a template for uh, what they are learning. However, let's say the kids don't know much. You can still do stuff like analogy <coughs> organizers. Compare being a kid in the family to being a colony uh, and relating to the mother country. And then they can use what they know about to start bridging toward the thing you're going to be studying or reading about. Surveys, opinionaires, uh, controversial statements, all of these things are front-loading activities that engage the kids because they're based on dilemmas and they get us going. So all of those things are very, very specific ideas. Of course, when you do opinionaires, you are making a mini argument. When you do rankings, you have to compare and contrast. When you do scripts, um, you can translate cartoons into scripts uh, about, let's say, relationships as you prepare for Romeo and Juliet. So you can do very specific work in preparing kids for the specific genres they're going to be reading. Great. Thanks, Jeff. You all also take up the question of text-dependent questions, another really um, powerful idea that's being circulated, and the focus, um, the related focus on teaching text by text or a single text at a time, making an argument about teaching for transfer. Michael, first I wonder if you could sort of talk to the audience a little bit about what you mean by teaching for transfer, and then second, what makes you believe that the um, standards require or assume? teaching for transfer? So, uh, okay. Well, uh, if you look at the standards themselves, they're, all of the verbs that introduce them are strategic, right? So that we want to have infer, 
connect, synthesize, those, those kinds of words. Um, that suggests an ability that is important and robust across texts. So if it were, if the standards themselves were about single text, the verbs that introduced them would be like remember or memorize, those kinds of things. And, and they're not. Um, so the standards themselves are about being able to, is to learn to do something so well that you can do it in new, in new contexts. Um, so so that's, we have to begin with that, with that understanding. That's why it's so puzzling to me that there's an emphasis on text-dependent question and why there's a, a, a Coleman, well, David Coleman, when he's speaking about how to, how to teach, speaks against giving strategy instruction. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll grant that a, a, a mini-lesson on a strategy like getting the main idea as, as, that, you know, if you spend 15 minutes on a mini lesson, you can't help kids understand how to get the main idea of any text of any complexity. But strate- developing strategic understanding, understanding how readers go about their business, is crucially important. The problem with text-dependent questions is that they work for only one text. So what we have to do, we want to teach kids, and the problem with questions as a learning technology is that if I ask a question, I've already told my kids that what I'm asking about is worth noticing. So and, we want um, them... Go ahead. I'm, I'm go. sorry. Finish your point and I'll jump in then. Well, right. you've interrupted me now, Deborah. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> well, I was disconnected for 30 seconds and I'm so happy to be reconnected that I have to talk so that you know I'm here. But um, I think that this also goes back to a point that Jeff made about um, cultural literacy. The thing that's so puzzling to us is that if you focus only on text-dependent questions and if you dismiss the power of different kinds of reading strategies that exist across text, then what you're saying is what is important is not that kids can read, but what they are reading. So the focus becomes on particular content that ends up being really, really difficult to find a narrow focus that's going to be appropriate for our increasingly diverse student population. So the text-dependent questions puts the importance on the text rather than on the student's ability to read across text, which just seems so counterproductive to us. And um, to continue, I mean, to sort of relate to what Deborah said, and it puts the onus on the teachers. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, you can also ask a question to in ways that suggest the interpretive work that you want kids to do. So, so um, you know, a classic example would be, so in Chapter 2 of The Great Gatsby, we see the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. Well, you know, if kids skip over that passage, you know, they need to notice, what, what is this weirdness about this, this extended um, d- description? But if I say, let's look at this description, what do you think you might be... I've done the interpretive... In noticing, I've done the bulk of the interpretive work for kids. Um, now, if that would... My asking a question about the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg or about... Um, the you know what does the Curly's in Of Mice and Men what does Curly's uh, I'm sorry uh, Crooks's dog have to do with the ending? 
the what if we want kids to be able to do is see patterns and deviations from patterns and understand them and try to understand why they why they exist so um so as a technology text dependent questions are problematic for two reasons the teacher does in asking them the teacher does the bulk of the work and they're only useful for a particular text so mm-hmm. the argument that we make is that we want to help kids develop robust strategic understandings, we want them to be able to name what they do so that they can do it again in a different textual context. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the scariest moments of my uh, in my master's exam at the University of Chicago, we had some prepared texts that we had to do, and I was pretty well prepared for that. And then we had, um, we had one impromptu text. It was Monterey Wailing Village by Marianne Moore. And I read that poem, and I had nothing. So, <laughs> it, it, and I thought, you know, I spent all these years, and I'm not going to, they're going to fail me. And then I said, mm-hmm. okay, okay, Michael, what, what moves can you make? Okay, it's a poem, speaker audience occasion. And then I started to do some work because I could name what I was going to do uh-huh. So that I could then start doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. so anyway, so that that's sort of the approach that we take. And but you know, we'll agree that many lessons on many lessons that are not thoughtful about strategies are not very useful. But maxi lessons that give kids extended practice with discrete strategies that they can name and then are asked to apply in new situations, we think that's at the heart of effective teaching. I want to jump in and just make a comment on transfer because it's so important to our book that we're trying to give teachers transferable principles of practice so they can give their kids transferable um, uh, strategies. We just had our National Writing Project Summer Institute, uh, pre-institute this last weekend, and what we talked about over and over and over again were in your teaching demos, you have to articulate your principles of practice that go across cases and then strategies that enact those principles. That's what teachers have to be able to do, and that's what kids have to be able to do. If you're asking text-dependent questions, like Michael said, there's no principles, there's nothing transferable, there's nothing named uh, that can be applied to new situations. And the teachers doing the work instead of the kids. I tell my student teachers all the time, anything you do better be in immediate service of the kids doing something. And anything the kids are doing better be in immediate service of internalizing principles of practice that they can start naming. Oh, I could use this in this situation. I could use this next time I do X or Y. Uh, And I, I just think that's very, very important. It's something we get after a lot in this book. And can I remember when we yeah. – uh, that's one of the reasons that – it's a, another reason why uh, the um, there's such an oddness to the, um, the text in Appendix B. So that transfer is enhanced when you create diverse textual contexts for kids. So – somebody want in? You, you, you heard me take a breath. Yes. <laughs> Um, this is kind of one of the most stunning and ironic things that I was recently at um, a college board gathering where they were talking about ways of uh, reducing the achievement or, and, or opportunity gap, if you prefer. And one of the things that was posited was that maybe we ought to do more um, 
close reading, and good thing I can, you know, spot ideology when, when I see it. Because in, even with Michael's example of his um, exam, if a text isn't working for you, and your achievement is based solely on that text, you're out. You have nothing to give. You have nothing to bring. The text didn't fit into sort of your world, your experience, for a whole variety of complex, complicated sociocultural reasons. It sort of puts you out of the ball game. And if we focus only on particular kinds of texts, this is a relationship between what Jeff was talking about earlier of exemplars. This is the worst possible nightmare for making sure that we continue to work as a profession to reach all kids. When you combine the exemplars and only the exemplars with text-dependent questions and only text-dependent questions, we're back into a kind of monocultural approach to textual understanding that is going to really increasingly disenfranchise the very kids that we've been working um, so hard to be able to reach. So that's why I took my breath in. Oh, and good point. <laughs> a breath well worth taking. <laughs> but um, it, the, the, what I was uh, just I was yeah. um, before the breath. I, I was saying that if you if we create diverse textual context, so if we ask kids, what can you do? What what do you do with a poem that's like what you do with a comic strip, and what's different? What's, what do you do with this kind of comic strip that's, diff- that's like what you do with a movie? You know, if we get them thinking deeply about those kinds of things, we're, what we're foregrounding is the how. And back where Jeff started out, the first thing we said in this interview is the thing we like about the standards is the standards, the standards focus on procedural understandings. The standards focus on how, on the things we need to do the ways we have to perform in order to be a better reader and writer. And so that we want to we want to do teaching where we give kids repeated practice in we, where we do teaching that shares the secret things that experienced readers know, in the words of Margaret Meek, helps kids articulate the things that they that their tacit understandings about how reading works so that they can consciously apply both what they've learn to do and what we've taught them to do in new situations. Mm-hmm. Thank you all. <laughs> um, I, we, have, um, we have sort of danced all around the next question throughout the interview, but I want to make sure um, that we talk a little bit about, it's not that we've danced around it, we've actually talked about it a lot, um, but I want to make sure we kind of directly address it as well, and that's... Um, some issues around the way that um, both the exemplars in Appendix B and um, uh, the authors who are talking and, and writing a lot about what we should do with these standards talk about text and text complexity. So um, there are a whole bunch of things we could talk about, but um, Michael, maybe you want to get us started. I know you... Um, we could talk about the appendix some more, or we could just really talk about um, thinking about text sets instead of individual texts, or we could also talk about the idea of interpretive complexity as well as text complexity.
authenticity. So I don't know um, really where you'd want to start at this point or what you feel like you've already said, but I know people are really well, I'll, I'll start with um, the, the text. concerned about this. I'll, let me talk about the text set. So one of the, um, one of the things that's really interesting is in the K-5 standards, they talk about connections across texts, and really that conversation drops out after, after grade five. So the, um, there's some talks about connection, you know, looking at different examples of, of the like media um, representations of Shakespeare play, for example, as, as, as a way to shed light on the, on the anchor text. But it doesn't talk about sequences of texts. And one of the things that, that we all believe is that when you read, you, one of the first moves you make as an experienced reader is you put whatever you read in relationship to, as part of a textual conversation. And, and part of the things that we, we do as experienced readers is we create, I mean, like an, an obvious example of that would be um, every time I read an editorial in the New York Times, I'm imagining the conversation that it's having with the Wall Street Journal. You know, they're, not, they're not being written independent of each other. Um, and the same thing is, is true both in terms of genre, um, that every satire you read is in some ways a, in a conversation with, with other kinds of satires that have preceded it, but also about the particular conceptual issues that, that it addresses. So the idea of and this is especially important for our English language learners and our striving readers, is that we want to create instructional conditions where they get to expend extended time in a domain so that they get so that it will increase their ability to read progressively more difficult text because they're in a domain where there, there is part of this conversation. The longer you spend in the conversation, the more able you are to, to participate in it. So that idea about um, teaching texts as independent of one another does not give the kids the kind of preparation, that, the kind of textual preparation that, that they need. We see that um, really strikingly in when David Coleman talks about teaching the um, the Gettysburg Address, and where he says, well, it would be okay to talk about the Declaration of Independence. Well, geez, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't you want, wouldn't you want to talk about, you know, like he gives you permission to bring in another text. That seems crazy to me. Um, uh, right, and it it just sort of seems that the, uh, um, that focusing on text-dependent questions only keeps kids from being able to make intertextual connections to do that kind of rich interpretation, to be able to understand allusions, to understand the fact that texts are in conversation with one another, the kind of one text at a time, independent reading kind of works against that, and it ends up being what I call the inoculation approach to teaching literature, that you sort of like get it, you have to have it, you have to be exposed to it like a chicken pox shot, and then once you've gotten it, well then that we've accomplished that, we inoculated you, you read To Kill a Mockingbird, you're done with it, it's over, turn in your, your books and your orange um, cards, and now we're going to move on to some Something else as if 
text didn't exist in conversation with one another. And I wanted to just say something quickly about um, the difference between text complexity and an interpretive complexity. And Michael's heard me give the example before of the old man in the sea, which, you know, I could read when I was not even in two digits and uh, my mom mistakenly thought that I was a genius because of the readability of the words. I didn't really understand the text at all. I couldn't really interpret it. Or a poem like Gwendolyn Brooks's We Real Cool. A kid can read the words. It's not hard to read. It's really easy to read. But will they understand the irony and the stance of the speaker? So until we more fully articulate exactly what it means by text complexity, ironically, we're going to be really missing the boat in the kinds of things that we want to have um, kids be able to read. Jeff, what are you talking about? Go ahead. One of my favorite parts of the book is where we talk about interpretive complexity versus textual complexity. Right. And I just think it's it's a great argument, uh, with all due humility, that <laughs> you know if we're going to try to meet these standards, that we don't necessarily need need more complex text. What we need is to cultivate more interpretive complexity on the part of the kids. And sometimes cartoons or movies or the Hunger Games is going to allow that. And those things will also allow us to then, you know, Hunger Games to read 1984 in a more interpretively complex way. This is also why we're big on inquiry, because then you get to spend extended time in a domain where you become familiar with the concepts, and then you become able to use the interpretive operations that are necessary to inferring among those kind of concepts, etc. So the... Common Core allows us to do less, to focus more. It allows us to do less, to do more. And we think we ought to be spending extended times with text and materials that operate on the same issues and on the same questions because that's going to allow for more interpretive complexity, which in turn will allow for more textual complexity. And we have to remember that the things got into, in part, published them without having to pay fees. So the reason that the texts are old is that they're in the uh, public domain. So anything that's new is not there um, because because of the permissions issue. So it's important to understand. And that's not a critique. I mean, I completely get why they didn't want to pay, pay the permissions. But we need to understand that the construction of the suggestions was informed by uh, copyright issues, not people did not like freely select from all of the available texts. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we just have to be mindful of that, too. By pragmatics and by pedagogical principles. Right. right. I mean, good teachers need good lawyers. <laughs> we have to break a copyright law <laughs> pretty much every well, day. Well, we have. You know, if, you've got, um, if you've got the books in your book room, you get to teach them. Or if you've got, exactly. the, if you've got the newspapers in your, in your classroom, right. you get to teach them. Right, and fair use can take you pretty far. Um, So, um, everyone, I need to sign off now, um, but I wanted to thank you so much for letting me be a part of this conversation, and I know that um, you three will um, continue and maybe on more NWP-focused stuff, too. So um, thanks so much. See ya. Thank you for joining us, Deborah, and thank you for the book. It's lovely. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So, yes, thank you both um, for everything. I think we could close with one last question, um, and it's a writing project focused question, always my favorite closing question. Um, I really, as I already said, I was really um, intrigued by both um, the content in reading this book, but also sort of a meta reading of imagining the work that you did to put it together. And it really made me think a lot about um, collaboration and about the National Writing Project and the Summer Institute where teachers have this shared experience in the Summer Institute that is designed to support them to theorize their own experiences and practices in order to think about their pedagogical choices. So in the Summer Institute, all the teachers write to understand what's difficult and compelling and everything about writing. And they read about writing and the teaching of writing, and they also share a practice that works for them so that our growing shared knowledge base about teaching and learning is informed through all these different ways of knowing. Um, and I, I just want to close by noting again, it's easy to see you all as researchers and teachers and writers enacting all your ways of knowing, from sharing what you know about your own teaching practices to thinking about the way you develop expertise in other areas of your lives to your careful reading and close reading of the Common Core State Standards and also many documents that are rising up around in response to them. It seems that one might study the Uncommon Core as its own example of a unit of study in the way, all the ways you talk about what is and isn't a unit of study. Um, and it seems like another lens that writing projects might bring to a shared reading of this book. Jeff, I wonder if you have had any thoughts or ideas as your book gets ready to come out right before the Summer Institute. Um, about this book in the hands of groups of teachers in a in your summer institute or otherwise? Well, I do. You know, as I mentioned, we just had our pre-institute in preparation for our summer institute, and we spent a lot of time on preparing for demos. And we talked a lot about principles of practice. What is it that explains why something you do works? And, and how is that embedded in the authority of your practice in a way that can be articulated and transferred to other situations. And that's what we're trying to do in the book. We're trying to articulate long-standing principles of practice, things that are established in the research base, things that, that we think are generative and vital ideas that should not be lost and that will apply in any subject area where we're doing literacy, which to me is every subject area. Uh, and, of course, the core is asking every teacher across the curriculum to be a teacher of literacy. So we're focusing on these seminal generative principles. You know, the big shift that I see that the core is bringing about, which makes some teachers nervous uh, and makes some parents and legislators nervous, is that there's a big shift from the what to a focus on the why and the how and the when and in what context to teach and learn. So that deep conceptual understanding is achieved. So the what is still there, but it comes through these procedures, through these expert practices that the anchor standards exemplify. So that's a very huge shift, and it requires highly professional teachers who understand what they do, who are very reflective, who can show that it works, and who are so reflective that they can articulate why it works. And then if something goes awry, they have this con conscious competence where they can say, you know, that didn't work, but I've got some pretty good ideas why and what I could do about it. And when they get all run, they can go, eh, i got a very good idea why that worked and how to repeat it. And that's what we're going after in the demos. 
Now, the Common Core, of course, is the big game in town right now, and even the states that don't have it, that it, it's this next generation standards and assessments are in play. So I think this is something national writing project sites need to address. They need to address this next generation standards and assessments. We've been leveraging this over the last several years at the Boise State Writing Project to do work in schools, and we delivered over 110,000 contact hours of in-service to teachers in our state last year alone. And we've done it by partnering with the State Department, and our lever point is the core. Now, when the teachers do their demos, we don't say do the core. We say do what works for you, but articulate the principles in a way that could be tied to the core. And so we're in schools doing what we know works and what our best final practice is embedded in our teacher consultants' classrooms, but we're doing it in a way that's transferable and it's going to help other teachers to have more engaging, vital, successful instruction that can be tied to and that supports the core. So I highly recommend to uh, National Writing Project fellows, to other directors, that you engage in a partnership with your state department with schools around you and say, hey, here's, here's a big project we're all working on. This is something the writing project is uniquely suited to help you to work on as a thinking partner. I would um, also add to that that one of the things I hope we modeled in the book is really paying careful attention to the various, not only the standards, but the parts of that document, the appendices, the ancillary written materials, and the things that have sprung up around it. So it's really, I think, crucially important. You know, when I start, when I my first summer with the with the National Writing Project at Rutgers University, one of the things that was, and I was did not come up through a writing project. So it, my, the first summer institute was really my first experience with the with the model. And one of the things that I saw were people it changed people's professional identities. And it's really a great, you know, re knowing deeply what's in the document, what it says, what it doesn't say, the stuff that people, that authors of the standards say, but not in the standards document themselves. Mm -hmm. That's really important for teachers to know so that they can stand up as public intellectuals, as people in their school to say, no, that's not there. That's, or that contradicts what they said. You can't tell me what to teach when, it, it, when the key design, when it's in the, one of the key design principles that it leaves the particular instructional decision in the hands of the experts. You, you see what I'm saying? That, that I, yes, I hope that we, exactly. we modeled that in the, in, in, in the book so that looking at, at our book or something like it, um, along with the standards, I think it would be a great project for teach, um, teachers as readers groups or as a summer institute um, material. You think so, Jeff? Yeah, at our site, at our site, we do a lot of book clubs. We ask our fellows and teacher consultants to do book clubs in their schools, and I think this would be a great professional development thing that people could get professional credit for to study the book and say, "Hey, what does this mean to us? How are we going to play these things out in our own school and department?" I completely agree. And on that note, I am going to have to say goodnight to both of you. It's been fantastic to talk to you, but we are at the end of the hour, and um, the book will speak for itself as well. So we hope that it gets into lots of hands of lots of teachers and lots of writing projects. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you, Tanya.